0: Well, in 1980, Ronald Reagan was busy traveling around the United States. You remember what Ronald Reagan was doing in 1980? What was he doing? He was campaigning for President of the United States. And uh, his wife was along with him, sometimes together and sometimes apart. Nancy Reagan came to Daytop Village in New York, and her life was forever transformed. It was in that city that she saw and her eyes were open to how big a drug problem we have in the United States. And as you know, you think about the Reagan years, you think about Nancy Reagan, right? When things comes to mind, right? What comes to mind? Just say no, right? Just say no to the temptations that come, particularly with drug abuse and the drug problem. She was so impacted by the problems there that she traveled extensively, took to 65 city, cities and 33 states, television shows, visited rehabilitation centers, wrote articles, even visited the Vatican, eight foreign cities, brought thirty first first wives to the United States to try to bring up this problem awareness and just saying, just say no. And uh, even this uh, went just from the issue of drug abuse and it, it uh, expanded even to violence, to stop violence, just say no to violence, or premarital sex, or a host of other vices that young people might try. And this slogan became hers, right? Just say no. And it came across all of America, even so that you say it today. And many have doubted the effectiveness of these campaigns because our problems have just increased. The drug problem has never been greater. The problems of sexual promiscuity have never been greater. Violence has never been greater. And so it's difficult to know how it whether it helped or not. But, you know, there's something very attractive about just saying no. Something very attractive about this campaign. Something very attractive about this simple message. All you need to do, get away from sin, just say no. And in fact, many people in churches have uh, picked it, this up, this philosophy. You might call it willpower religion. Right? When temptation comes, preachers say, or counselors say, just say no to temptation. But you know what they find out? find out it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. People may have a genuine desire to overcome their sin. They, they may see the terrible consequences and effects of their sin. They may even know how much it's ruining their lives. They may be ashamed of their sin. They may be putting forth great efforts to overcome their sin, but willpower religion can't conquer sin. Sam Storm said it better than, than I said. I, I quote, he writes, Typically today, And throughout history, the approach of getting people to do what's right is by telling them in a very loud, angry, threatening voice, don't do what's wrong. We've operated under the assumption that if we portray the horrid consequences of sin in sufficiently graphic and revolting terms, we will succeed in motivating the human will to turn from it. I'm not suggesting, Storms writes, that sin doesn't have horrid and devastating consequences. It most certainly does. Now and especially in eternity. Nor am I suggesting that we cease telling people to abstain from sin or that we tone down the urgency with which we warn them concerning its deceitful and destructive ways. But if we all bring to bear against this incredibly powerful allure of sensual self-indulgence is a just-say-no campaign, we don't stand much of a chance. Any approach to resisting temptation that consists solely or even primarily of a teeth-gritting, fist-clenching, will racking resolve not to yield will ultimately fail. Or if it does manage to succeed in the short term, it will produce a joyless and mean spirited legalism that will hardly prove attractive either to Christians or to non Christians. What's missing in our battle with temptation? Without intending to be simplistic, it's a failure to understand the source of sin's allure. We sin because it feels good. Sin is hard to resist because it has a remarkable capacity to please. The author of Hebrews spoke of the passing pleasures of sin, or as the ESV puts it, the fleeting pleasures of sin. Granted, the pleasure of sin is just passing, transient and fleeting, but it's still pleasure. That's why we're so, we so readily yield to it. The bottom line is this. When faced with temptation, the immediate gratification of sin will almost always triumph over the fear of its long-lasting consequences. So how do we defeat the power of sin's promise of pleasure? And here's the answer that Sam Storms gives. He says, by faith in God's promise of a superior pleasure. By faith in God's promise of a superior pleasure. Right? In other words, Sam Storms is saying the the way to conquer sin isn't by sheer determination. It's not by By just trying to do it, trying to stay away from it. Rather, it's by placing before you something that you want even more than you want your sin. When that takes place, you'll have power to conquer your sin. I guarantee it. You'll be happy and you'll be joyful in doing so. And this morning, as we come to Colossians chapter 3, in our exposition through the epistle of Colossians, Paul's going to begin to become immensely practical to us. He is concerned, beginning in chapter 3 all the way through middle of chapter 4, is that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. His exhortations to proper living are going to be fast and furious. He's going to address the passions of our lives. He's going to address the attitudes that we have in our speech. He's going to call us to display love and and, and put forth kindness and patience and humility towards others. He's going to call us to live lives worthy of the gospel, consistent with Christ. He'll address husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters. He'll call us to be devoted to prayer. He'll call us to be sharing our faith. But in all of these commands and all this instruction, rather than presenting a willpower religion that seeks to put off the old self and put on the new merely by mere determination, Paul's going to show right at the beginning here of chapter 3 how it is that a believer in Christ actually follows and can follow in obedience to his Lord. And Paul's counsel is simple. Don't escape sin through your own willpower. Escape it by placing your thoughts and affections in a different place. Those in Colossae, we've seen the past couple weeks, were bombarded on every side about advice, how to, how to keep away from their sin. There are people on this side saying, oh, you need to keep this particular diet, or you need to, to, to worship God on these particular days. And then another voice us saying, oh, you need to seek Him through a mystical experience. Or others were saying, no, you need to beat your body and put it in subjection under your feet. And to all these things, Paul says at the end of chapter 2, verse 23, these have an appearance of wisdom... Self-made religion, self-abasement, severe treatment of the body. But in the end is what he says. These types of things are of no value against fleshly indulgence. It may look like it works, but it doesn't work. So in chapter 3, Paul is going to give us and the Colossian believers, the Colossian believers and by implication to us, right, how it is that we might overcome sin in our lives. And I invite you to open your Bibles, if they're not already, to Colossians chapter 3. And the way to conquer sin is by a heavenward gaze. Let me read Colossians 3. I'm going to read the first four verses to set the context. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. In other words, if you are a Christian, if you have experienced a a transformed life, if you have shared in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Okay, that's who this is, is talking to. He says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. In this text, we really see the key to unlocking sin in our lives. The key is is to divert your focus away from the things that are on the earth, right, towards the things that are above, towards the heavenly things, right? It comes right clear here in in verse 1, right? Keep seeking the things above. The the similar command comes in verse 2. It says exactly the same thing, different words, but repeats it for emphasis. He says, set your mind on the things above. And in verses 3 and 4, give really the basis of these commands because your life is hidden With Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you'll be revealed with Him in glory. And so, as a believer in Christ, you've been raised from the dead. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, you ought to seek the things above. That's what he says. Three points come flying out of these verses. Point number one, seek the things above. Point number two, think on things above. And point number three, see yourself as hidden above. I had every intention of getting through each of these three points this morning, but I'm not going to because I think it's so important for us to overcome sin and because I was so attracted by what it is that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I've been reading books for a couple months about heaven. My sermon next week in verse 2 is going to be about heaven. Set your minds on the things above, not the things upon earth. And next week I want to share with you what heaven is like and, and, and just what it will be like someday when we're there and when we're revealed. So this morning we're just going to get through verse 1. I'm just going to take that simple command, seek the things above, put that, that's the title of my message this morning, and um, we'll talk about it what seeking the things above actually means. It comes here in verse 1. The things above are fundamentally the things that are, are not on earth, right? Verse 2 has that contrast, right? Seek the things above, not the things that are on earth, right? The things above are the things that are, are transcendent, above and beyond the earth. Now, they're no less part of reality. It's simply that these things, they're, they're like not visible to us, um, the things above are, you know, in some sense, shadowy. We can't fully see them. We can't fully experience them. That's what Paul's talking about. Seek those things. Seek heaven. Seek where Christ lives. Seek where the throne of God is. Seek the kingdom of God. Seek the true spiritual realities. Right? Paul's talking about the entire spiritual realm in which God dwells and rules and reigns. You know, it was interesting when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate said, Are you a king? Remember, he, said, he says, my kingdom is what? It's not this world. And he goes on explaining, if, if my kingdom were this world, then my disciples would be fighting so I wouldn't be delivered up to the kings of this world. But as it is, my kingdom is in a different realm. And Paul says that we as yes, risen believers in Christ should seek this other realm where Jesus is king and where He's ruling and reigning, the, the things above. In fact, in many ways, we should seek where we are. Being raised up with Christ. In verse 3, seek where our life is hidden with God, with Christ in God. That's what we should seek. We should seek the kingdom of God. Jesus said that, Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first what? His kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. We ought to seek the kingdom like a, a merchant who travels the world seeking fine pearls. It ought to be our pursuit. It ought to be our passion. It ought to be the center of our minds always. And you know what one of the products of seeking the things above is? You know, there's a a chorus sometimes we sing, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Right? Let's sing it together. Look full in His wonderful face. Right? You look up there and what happens? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You look at the wonderful face of Jesus. You realize the glory of His grace. And the pleasures of this world become dim. They become passing. But they only become passing if you first have your heavenward gaze. Throughout the Bible, there are examples of people who had heavenward gazes and lived great lives. Moses, a great example of this. He was raised in Pharaoh's house. Had unbelievable power in the land. And yet, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Instead, as Hebrews 11, verse 25, he chose to endure the ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. What a crazy choice. To to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than enjoying the pleasures of Pharaoh's house? Isn't that crazy? Don't we want the pleasure? How could he do that? It says in, later on in Hebrews, the reproach he considered the reproach of Christ to be greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. In, in other words, Moses wasn't seeking the things here upon earth because if he was, he wouldn't have chosen reproach of the people of God. He would have chosen pleasure, right? He had a greater pleasure in his mind. He considered the reproach of Christ to be greater riches. He considered this to be much better and much more pleasurable. I'd rather have my riches over here. And do you see what he's doing? He's having a heavenward gaze. And that's giving him ability then to conquer sin. And would the truth be known, this is always the secret of those who have overcome sin and been greatly used of God. They've all passionately pursued the things above. I've been amazed at the, the persecuted church especially in the early church. They endured conflicts of sufferings. They were made a public spectacle. They were thrown into prison and they accepted the plundering of their property with joy. Please show up at your house. Say, knock on your door. Say, give me the keys to your house. We're taking your house. <laughs> Why? Because you believe in Jesus Christ. Okay. And they walk out happy, that they'd been considered worthy to suffer for His name. How is that? The only way, as Hebrews 10.34 says, is that they knew they had a better possession awaiting them in heaven. They were seeking the things above and not the things that are upon earth. And so the things of earth, like their reputation or their comfort or their property, were not valuable to them compared to the kingdom of God that they were pursuing, that they were seeking. How, how is it that martyrs die so Well, those who make their stand for Christ. It's because God promises them a crown of life if they're faithful unto death. And their hearts and minds are focused on a greater cause and being focused on the greater cause, the things of earth grow strangely dim. And they willingly suffer for the cause of Christ. How is it that Jesus was able to withstand those mighty temptations of Satan that came upon Him in the wilderness? It's because He's seeking the things above. After 40 days of, ha- of fasting, right? Jesus is hungry and Satan comes to Him. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And Jesus, listen to what he quotes. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Think of what He's saying. He said, it's not physical bread. the pleasures of eating. And submitting to you, Satan, in your suggestion, I'm not living this. I don't live by bread alone, but I live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's a greater reality going on here, Satan. Be gone. Satan tempted him several other times. One of them, he says, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world, he says to Jesus, if you'd but fall down and worship me. But Jesus, his mind wasn't on an earthly kingdom that Satan might give him. His, his focus was upon a heavenly kingdom, and in the heavenly kingdom, they play by different rules than they do in the earthly kingdom. And The heavenly kingdom says, "This: you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only." And if that's the rules of the heavenly kingdom, He's not going to compromise those in order to live to, and to get and to conquer earthly kingdoms. Do you see how the heavenly mindedness of Christ helped Him? How is it that Jesus lived a sinless life by mere willpower? Or by fundamentally a perspective that said, I have come to do your will. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. I do not seek my own will. I seek the will of Him who sent me. Jesus, as He walked upon the earth, was seeking the will of God. He was seeking the will of His heavenly Father. And by seeking that, He was victorious over all sin. Never sinned. How is it that Jesus was able to endure the cross? The same thing. The cry in Gethsemane was, right? Not my will, but thine be done. He's saying, boy, my, my pleasure is going to pull me to, to get away from the cross. If there's any other way. But, you know, I've got a greater spiritual reality, God. And he's praying to his father and said, not, not what I want. Because I want to get away from the cross. But I want you, you want. And, you know, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says that Jesus endured the pain and the shame of the cross by setting the joy of the world to come before him. That's how He did it. It was with a, with a, a heavenly look, with a, a futuristic look to the joy set before Him. That's how He conquered sin. That's how He endured the cross. And how is it that we are to overcome sin? How is it that we will provide others with a victorious example of loving God? Here it is, by seeking the things above. You know, when you set something far off in the distance, there's a, it has a wonderful way of defraying the small setbacks along the way. I read this past week of... Um, of Portugal during the 15th century. Now, you probably Portugal in the 15th century is probably not on your mind, not on your radar screen, but there's a lot of lessons to be learned here. Back in the 15th century, they didn't have refrigeration. They were dependent upon spices that came from the Indies for their food, for cooking, and for storing them. And the only way for Portugal to get these spices was across this big land route, that these spices would come and travel, and along the way there were all these middlemen, these Arab middlemen who'd take the spices and pay here, and take the spices here and sell for a little bit bigger. And kind of this, these spices would go all. By the time they got to Portugal, <laughs> spices were big bucks. And um, Prince Henry of Portugal said, "Boy, if we could just tap into the, to the." Our resources that we have, they were great naval power at the time. If we could tap into our sea resources and maybe sail around Africa and get to India, maybe we can stop all of these um, uh, high prices that we have. And it will be lucrative for us and it will be helpful. But the problem is that they they didn't know how or if this was going to be done. It was like this shadowy wish. They had no idea how big Um, Africa was. At that point, the furthest they'd sailed around Africa, if you're thinking about the map of Africa, it's the the western, far eastern red, western edge that goes like this. They just kind of, they hadn't even passed that edge yet. That uh, cape was called, um, I forget what it is. I've got it written down here someplace. What is it? No, it's not good. Good Hope's in the South. You know, I'll find it here. But he said, Borjador. that's what it is. They're trying to pass this, this Cape, but even past Cape Bordeaux, somehow with the geography, there's winds that come across, there's the Sahara Desert that blows, you know, this big makes the clouds real dark, and the way the wind blows makes sailing past there very difficult. And in fact, the Portuguese people had this rumor, this myth, that there are sea monsters beyond that. And, and not only are, are there, there are sea monsters, but if you get beyond that, the Sahara is going to kill you of heat. And so they never sailed beyond that, and it wasn't very far. It's you know several I don't know 100 miles, 800 miles, maybe maybe 1,000 miles, maybe 500. You know it's not real far, but eventually what they did because they had this wish, because they had this goal, they had this promise of, of seeking to get to India, they developed some um, some new techniques. They they built swifter boats. They developed some techniques so they could sail away from the land. So they kind of sail away from this cape, and eventually they they did better. And time after time, right? They they went. They eventually passed this Cape Borador, and and eventually went down. And and, and as they came around Africa, they they come around Africa. They start hitting this east west coast. You know what Africa looks like? And they thought, hey, they're going to make it. And they kept sailing. And then they sailed, and it. It started turning south for a couple thousand miles they still had to go. They didn't know. And time after time, a ship would go out and would go and then would come back and then would go and then would come back and then would go and, would come, back and, would go and come back. And the number of ships, the number of years is astonishing. But they had this goal of, of getting to India. They didn't know how, for all their intents and purposes, they, maybe Africa would go all the way down to the South Pole. They had no idea. They kept believing, they kept trying, kept pushing on until finally a man named Bartholomew Diaz finally rounded the Cape of Good Hope. That's Darcy in the south. And he gets around the Cape and he starts heading up towards India. But the crew was kind of mutinous at the time because they'd gone far away and the ships were in bad circumstances and they didn't have good supplies. And so he had to, had to come back. A few years later, a man named Vasco da Gama finally Captain a convoy of ships which made it all the way around Africa to India more than 50 years after Prince Henry had initiated the effort. Along the way, had many difficulties and setbacks. I mean, they had to face these man-eating sea serpents, <laughs> which, of course, were proved wrong, right? They had to deal with the poor weather and the ships being lost, deal with the limited supplies along the African coast with each trip, they learned how to stock their boats appropriately. And they, they learned from their failures and kind of pressed on. They even learned how to take a faster course to the southern tip of Africa. Rather than huddling the coast all the way along, they even learned how to swoop out and catch favorable winds on the way down. And with the ultimate goal of seeking India around the coast of Africa, their setbacks were ultimately overcome. But listen, what is it that allowed them to continue on? It was this shadowy promise they had of possibly maybe being able to get around Africa to India. They didn't know for sure if they could get there. They didn't even know if it was possible. And in this way, in some sense, the efforts of the Portuguese are a little bit like our efforts. Yes, the promises of God are sure and heaven is certain, but in our minds they're often shadowy. We don't see heaven in its clear reality. We don't, we've never been to heaven. It's not like we've been around it. Yep, we can do that. We've not been there. We've not passed through the waters of death to get there. We've never seen Jesus Christ actually seating on the throne. And so in some sense, they're shadowy promises. By faith, we believe them. And it is through faith in believing them that then you'll be able to go past the discouragements along the way. And Paul calls us here to seek the things above. Because that's how we'll rid ourselves of our sin. That's how when we sin, we'll we'll get up and realize the forgiveness of God in Christ and, and press on and maybe have victory where we didn't have victory before and go further on down the coast and further on down the course, the coast. And in fact, one of the things Paul says here, if you notice, when he says, seek the things above, it's a present tense. And the New American Standard translators have done a good job at this by keep seeking the things above. Our pursuit of the heavenly realities need to be constant and never dying. Think about if the Portuguese had, had rounded the cape and you know kind of come, and once Africa started turning south, said, "Nope, well, that's it. <laughs> we can't do it. Oh, this is too much. I'm done. Wouldn't work. That's what Paul is saying. Keep seeking. Keep seeking. Keep seeking. Because you know what? When you stop seeking the things above, your battle with sin, it's lost. It's done. I long for Rock Valley Bible Church to be a place where, where we keep seeking the things above. My heart for all of us this morning might be like the heart of David in Psalm 27, verse 8. He's writing a prayer to God and he says, When you said, O Lord, seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. And God is telling you the same thing here this morning. God is saying, Seek my face. Seek the face of Jesus, right? It's even here in the text, right? Set your minds on the things above where Christ is. God is telling us, seek Christ. Seek where He is. Seek my face. And David said, when you said, seek my face, my heart said, your face, O Lord, I will seek. And so I ask you, is that your desire today? Is your desire today to seek the face of God. Seek the face of Christ. Maybe you here this morning and say, "Yeah, you know what, Steve? That's what I want." And I know I should be speak seeking spiritual realities. I know it's true, but I, I, I know I need to seek the things above. But quite frankly, the things of earth are more attractive to me than the things of heaven above. I find it easier to think about my sports team, or to read the latest news, or to watch the television, or spend my, my time on. Trivial pursuits or pursue my lusts. I know the tension. That's where I live every day. Don't think that I'm different than you are simply because I'm a pastor of a church. My heart is torn after following the things of the world. I like reading the news. I like reading the newspaper. I like watching the Chicago Bears, especially this season. If they do good, it's bad for me because I put more of my mind upon the Bears doing well. It was wonderful a couple of years ago when they're bad—not a problem. But this year they got a chance, and there's a pull there. I like surfing the internet, just reading about all stuff, and just filling my mind with stuff that I like reading. You know, killing precious hours of my life. It's not that any of these things are bad. It's okay to have a sports team. It's okay to have a television show that you watch. It's okay to find ways to rest and relax and have your recreation. These are things that God has given us to enjoy. They're not wrong. okay? But when such things begin to take a a, a place in your life that they just crowd out everything and your pursuit of Christ above is a little bit or gone, that's how these things are. You, You can consume yourself with anything in the world. And it can come and it can just take over your whole life. Things which are good and of themselves, but if they just consume everything, they're not good. Because you have forsaken keeping, keep seeking the things above.
1: But let me me tell you, here's the way
0: to solve the problem. The the way to solve the problem is by making the things above more attractive to you than the things that are on the earth that might push it out. And like, like, for instance, you ever noticed a a die football fan. I brought up the Bears. I bring a football fan. He'll travel long miles to go and see the football game. fact, towards the end of the season, we'll sit in sub-zero weather to watch his team play. After the game, he's going home from the stadium. He turns on the radio so he can listen to the coach's comments. He turns on the evening news so he can watch it again. Maybe he's taped it so he watches it again. He listens to the late-night talk Radio analysis of the game, and then the next day in the papers, he reads all about it. What took place, and then at work, he's talking with his coworkers, "Hey, did you see the game?" And he's then reflecting. The first half of the week reflects upon what was, and the next week reflects upon what will be in the next game. Doesn't matter the fact the game lasts three hours. It's three hours of bliss and joy. It doesn't matter to arrive at the stadium several hours early because he loves the camaraderie of the tailgating in the in the parking lot. Overtime is great when it goes long; it's great because it's a good game and I get more football. You know what? Let, Let me ask you: a diehard football fan, if his buddy says, "Hey, you want to come fishing tomorrow night, tomorrow afternoon?" But that's when the game is. What's he going to say? I don't think so. I'm going to the game. I don't want to fish. You just look at that as temptation, right? I'm setting my mind upon the things above. I don't don't need that because I so desire the things above. You see the connection there? It's Paul's heart. Other worldly pleasures can't compete with football and other worldly pleasures ought not to compete with the kingdom of God. Her heart ought to be so thrilled with the things above that sin becomes less and less attractive to you. Right? Isn't that what Sam Storm said, right? He's talking in the quote I said earlier How do we defeat the power of sin's promise? By faith in God's promise as a superior pleasure. And I just say, church family, when your heart is convinced of greater things above, the things on earth begin to lose their glamour. And I've experienced tastes of this before. Oh, not like I want. I've experienced tastes of it. I think um, one was, Doug Sosnowski showed those pictures. I got those pictures on Saturday of this church in Bakunde that is um, on on large part because of what we have done, building an orphanage for these children. And um, then the church can use that (laughs) part-time. My heart was just thrilled. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I knew that, you know, this is way more blessed to do this than for us having our own building. Way better to provide a, another place with their own building. I've had glimpses before in the past of just a, a, a glimmer of, of heaven and what it's like. And it's brought me to my knees in praise and adoration. And, and I confess it's not where I am all the time. It's where I want to be. Well, here's, here's my aim in the next few moments this morning is I want to tell you about the things above. I want to make this place where Christ is seated at the right hand of God attractive to you. I want to so stir your hearts that you say, boy, I want to seek first His kingdom. I want to draw your attention to the glories of heaven. So the commands of God will become more desirable to you than gold and sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. I want you to seek the face of God. And the way of doing that is I want to show you of... (coughs) What it means that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I mean, do you know that Jesus is seated there at the right hand of God? Do you know what Jesus is doing at the right hand of God right now? Do you understand the implications for your life? That's what I want to talk about. Just our last few moments together. First of all, Jesus at the right hand of God is ruling. <clears throat> He's ruling. He's ruling. We see here He's seated at the right hand of God. That's a position of honor and it's a position of power and authority. At the right hand of God Almighty, Jesus is ruling. God hasn't given this place of honor to any other man. He hasn't given this place of honor to any of the angels. He's only given this place to His Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's a place of honor and authority. It's where Jesus rules His kingdom from that throne. We saw in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus has a kingdom. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. It says that God rescued us from the domain of darkness. Talking about your salvation when you believe and trust in Christ. And He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, who Jesus is reigning over, seated at the right hand of God. In verses 16 through 18 of chapter 1, we see how supreme the rule of Jesus is. By him all things were created. This is by Jesus. All things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. At the right hand of God sits Jesus Christ, the One who created the world. Jesus created all authorities in this world, whether here upon earth or in heaven. He existed long before all these things existed. He sustains the world. He rules over the church. He has first place in everything. Jesus Christ is ruling the world Paul also mentions in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, his sovereign rule. He says, look there, chapter 2, verse 9. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him, you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. In Jesus dwells all the fullness of deity. It's why Jesus can reign supreme over the entire universe. God has not delegated the reign of His universe to anyone other than Himself. Now, that might sound confusing to you. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God and yet in Him dwells all the fullness of deity. We believe in the triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Equally God. Yet one. Yet three persons. Historically, the, the doctrine has been said this. We believe in one God and three persons in the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I I don't know how it all works itself out. I just know where to think about God the Father, Jesus Christ, ruling the world that He created at His right hand. That's what Jesus is doing. He's the head over all rule and authority, verse 10 says. Well, that's Jesus in heaven. Seated at the right hand of God, ruling. But He's also waiting. Not only is He ruling, He's also waiting. And for this, I want you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 110, Probably where Paul is thinking in his mind, it's a messianic psalm. Here it speaks about Jesus, the Messiah, sitting at the right hand of God. And the question usually comes this is, well, how well is Jesus ruling the world today? How well is he ruling the church? And and I just see the world, the world is getting more and more anti-God every day. And the church, there are many in the church who are using it for their own gain. And you say, is Jesus really ruling even over His church? It looks out of control. And I say, yes, Jesus is ruling. But in His rule, He's waiting to fully exert His rule. <clears throat> Look at Psalm 110, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. This is the Lord the Father talking to David's Lord the Son who is the Messiah, who is God Himself, God having inner Trinitarian conversations, says, sit at my right hand until, there's the key word, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Picture God the Father talking to the Son. Here, Jesus, sit at my right hand. You sit here and you rule and reign over the world, but your rule and reign, Jesus, isn't a reign of dominion right now. You need to be patient in ruling over the kingdoms of the world. Someday, you will exert all of your rule and authority in the fullness of your power. But today, Jesus, be patient. I have some work to do before I permit you to exercise your absolute sovereign control for the world to see. You just sit and wait. In verses 2 and 3, speak of the day when Jesus is let loose to reign. He says, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. A day will come when the Father will say to the Son, Okay, Jesus, the days of waiting are over. And I have made your enemies your footstool, and now you go and rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus gathers his army together, and he has willing. Followers. Verse 3 says, people will volunteer the day of His power. He's not a dictator forcing people to submit to Him. He's a benevolent king who people love to follow and they will volunteer freely. And really, that's what God's waiting for. He's being patient now to allow time to pass. Calling people to repentance to see them turn, repent from their sins and follow after Him. It's what He's waiting for. Romans 2 verse 4 puts it this way. Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Listen, it's the kindness, the waiting, the endurance of God. Not to judge right away that leads you to repentance. It's the heart of a benevolent king. He sits in the heavens ruling the universe. And when people are rebellious, He doesn't crush them under His mighty arm like He can. Like He will. He waits. He waits. He's giving opportunity for repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, His Son. He's waiting. And and the fact that you have sinned against Him and committed cosmic treason means that you deserve to die for your sins. But the fact that God is kind and, and patient and shows tolerance and forbearance to you right now, ought not to say, hey, I can continue in my sin. I ought to say, boy, God, I deserve to die You've been gracious. I thank You for having a gracious rule and reign. And, and I turn from my sin. And I, I trust You. And, and I thank You for Jesus Christ who's has allowed me to come towards You. And allowed me to even be forgiven that I might be Your friend and not Your enemy. I'm, volunteer, I'm, I'm willingly volunteering now for Your army. That's the sense of verse 3. Of his people will volunteer and His people will be on His side before that day. When they go and crush all the enemies. Because there's going to be a day in which He judges and crushes the nation. Look down at verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, He will lift up His head. And though Jesus is waiting now, He's not going to wait forever. When given the green light, His wrath will come upon the nations who rebelled against Him in great ways, shattering kings, judging the nations, filling the nations with corpses, piling them high, piling them deeper, stacking up the the corpses of those who have rebelled against Him. Will you this day, in this day of kindness and patience, will you this day repent or will you continue to test the patience of God? Jesus today is waiting and willing to receive those who come to Him by faith. Are you going to draw to Him or are you going to wait to be crushed by Him? That's your choice. And that's Jesus. He's in heaven ruling, not exerting His full rule. He's waiting someday to do that. And thirdly, He's praying. And maybe this is a fact about the current role of Jesus that's most important to keep you from your sin. Look again once there at Psalm 110, the verse I skipped, verse 4. The Lord has sworn... And will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Here, Jesus Christ is described as a priest. Now, the the role of a priest, you think about it, is to go to God on behalf of his people. If you read the book of Leviticus, it becomes real clear. People are instructed to bring a sacrifice to the priest. And the priest says, thank you very much. And the priest takes the sacrifice and he turns and he puts it up on the altar, burns it up and he goes to God on behalf of the person behind him who gave him the sacrifice to offer up. That's what a priest is. S- different sacrifice of different sorts. There were sacrifices of firstborn of a family. Sacrifices when someone was cleansed from leprosy. <clears throat> sacrifice when a house was cleansed from leprosy. Sacrifices for individual sins. If they're intentional, these sacrifices. If they're unintentional, these kind of sacrifices. Some offered up daily. Some offered up yearly. Some offered by every priest. Some offered only by the high priest once a year. The Day of Atonement. Covering the sins of all the nations for that year. But all that, the idea is the same, right? People give something to priest, priest turns around and gives it to God. And Jesus Christ is our priest. He's our mediator between us and God. And so in this way, He prays for us. He helps us. And His priesthood is far better than any priesthood of Levitical priests, right? His priesthood is forever, right? Verse 4, you are a priest forever. He'll never stop being a priest. Once a priest in the Old Testament times reached 50 years of age, no longer eligible. But the priesthood of Jesus goes forever. The sacrifice that Jesus offers is better than any sacrifice the Old Testament priests offered up. They offered up unblemished animals. Jesus offered up Himself, the sinless Son of God. And His sacrifice was so great, it's going to continue on through eternity. His sacrifice ended all sacrifices. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. There was a once for all, there was a finality of the sacrifice of Christ. There's no longer any need for any sacrifices because it's the only sacrifice worthy. And that's the sacrifice that we come to Him. We have nothing to offer Him except what he's given to us in the sacrifice of Christ. He's a priest then who gives us the sacrifice and then stands back and says, okay, here, give me the sacrifice. And then he prays to God on our behalf, looking down upon us with favor. And he's on our side. He is our friend. He is taking our requests and bringing them to God. His role of intercessory prayer I think about the priests as they offered up their sacrifices on behalf of others. There had to have been something. God now received this sacrifice. So, you know, They had to say something. They didn't just sacrifice their lips shut. We don't have record exactly what they said, but they should have said something. God received this sacrifice on behalf of these people as you've promised. And Jesus, we read, sits at the right hand of God, ever living to make intercession on our behalf. The greatest high priest there ever was, ever lives to make intercession for us. You know, when Jesus is sitting there <clears throat> ruling and waiting, He's not sitting there twiddling His thumbs and just kind of saying, Okay, God, when's the time? God, when? When can we go? You know what Jesus is doing right now at the throne of God? He's praying. He's praying for you. He's praying. He is our mediator. And He's pleading with God. time and time again, I think Jesus will continue to plead with God. Yes, He sinned, but my sacrifice is good for that. Oh, He sinned again. My sacrifice is good for that. Consider Him clean, O Lord. Sins again. And Jesus is ever living for God. My sacrifice is sufficient for Him. And He is my love. I've set my love and affection and compassion upon Him. Let Him go. Let Him go free. I think about that hymn we sang, right? Before the throne of God above. What what an encouragement to us, right? When we're discouraged from past sin, Jesus is praying for our forgiveness, right? I have a strong a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. That's so true. Is that as long as Christ is in heaven pleading for us, there's no way that God will circumvent, get around Jesus and get to us and say, Cursed be you because we have our plea in Christ Jesus. And then in our times of despair, right, when Satan tempts us to despair, it tells us of the guilt within, <laughs> Yes, I know I'm guilty. What do we do? We upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. And then even in Colossians chapter three, verse three, right? Because my sinless Savior died, My sinful soul is counted free. God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me, right? One with Himself, I cannot die. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ on high, my Savior and my God. The fact that Christ prays for us is a tremendous encouragement to overlook our sin, to realize there's no condemnation for our sins that we have committed and helps spur us on to seek above and to seek a sinless life. And when the time comes, When you're fighting with sin or temptation coming, you know you need to to look to Christ seated in the heavens. Turn over to Hebrews chapter four. This will be the last passage we look to this morning. Hebrews chapter four. Before I read verses fourteen to sixteen, I want you to consider that no temptation is overtaking you, but such is common to man, and God is faithful. Will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, so so picture temptation coming, right? This building is on fire. Where do you escape? You see an exit sign in back, and that's where you escape. Maybe the fire is raging over here. Where do you escape? You maybe escape back through that door. What if you're at the gymnasium and this starts flaming up here? Where do you escape? <clears throat> you escape out the back door. What if you're in the hallway? you escape out that door. God is always going to provide you a way of escape for your temptation that it comes. You might not know exactly how, but here's what you need to do when the temptation comes. You need to realize, oh God, I need Your help. I, I need Your help. Oh Lord, right now, temptation's coming. Keep it away. Strengthen me, God. Help me to make right choices. Let me flee immorality. Give, let me give rather than keep. right? Let me love rather than hate. Show me how it's better to to obey than to disbelieve. And God, show me the avenue of escape. And when Jesus hears that prayer, He's going to turn to His heavenly Father and give you grace and mercy to help in time of need. That's what He's going to do. Look what Hebrews chapter 4 says. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, who's now sitting at the right hand of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things that we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you see what the writer of Hebrews is saying? He's saying, listen, we've got this high priest who's sitting at the throne of God, and he's lived perfectly so he can sympathize with us. And, and he is there praying for us. And when we're in need, when the need is coming, when, when temptation's burning and the, and the building's on fire, we say, We need escape, O oh Lord. We go and we plead to him. We draw near with confidence, verse 16 says. To the throne of grace, and the promise is what? That we'll receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And it's not that so much even that this is what it is. God's showing it to us and that we walk in that way because He strengthens us to walk in that way. I mean, how simple is this? Right? To overcome sin? Seek the things above where Christ is. see at the right hand of God. When temptation comes, what should you do? Seek Jesus. Seek our high priest. Seek the one sitting above who's ruling and, and waiting and praying. And you'll find He wants to answer your prayer. And it'll help you in this way. Well, maybe we can redeem Nancy Reagan's phrase. Rather than saying, just say no, maybe we could say, just seek Jesus. That's the message today in Colossians chapter 3. Just seek, seek Jesus. It's not a willpower religion. It's a desperate dependence upon a faithful promise of God to sustain us through these times. Well, next week I can't wait because we're going to be looking at heaven next week. You sure want to come back because I'm just going to talk about heaven and try to do whatever I can just to talk to you about the glories of heaven They might become so attractive to us that things on earth will fade away. Prepare our hearts then as we continue on in weeks and months to come through these practical sections of Colossians 3. So, let's pray and just seek Jesus. Lord, I pray You'd help us a church to never fall into the trap of willpower religion that is essentially then only a help to the most disciplined in the world. who have the discipline to exert their willpower. God, but I pray that You would allow us to be a church that says, just seeks Jesus. He is our only hope, God. He's our only hope for our sins to be forgiven. He's the only hope for us to conquer sin. Is to realize that we've been raised up and seated with Him. We're hidden in Him with God. And He's the only hope we have of of finding grace and receiving mercy to help conquer sin in our lives. So God, I pray You'd use my feeble attempts, my words today, my illustrations, my thoughts, Your Word to illumine our hearts and minds to ever place before us how we just simply need Jesus. It's what we need to get us through and carry us through life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So God, I pray You'd use my feeble attempts, my words today, my illustrations, my thoughts, Your Word. To illumine our hearts and minds, to ever place before us how we just simply need Jesus. It's what we need to get us through and carry us through life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.